0: Welcome to the Renegade Inc podcast. This is the audio version of our weekly talk
1: show hosted by Ross Ashcroft.
0: Welcome to Renegade Inc, a new kind of talk show which allows us to think differently about the issues that we all face. On this programme we consider why so many people globally are so disengaged with their jobs. It was in 1930 that the economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that by now we'd all be working for just 15 hours a week. So what went wrong? Uh, Why have we been unable to achieve the brave new workplace? Joining me to discuss why we're all working harder and longer and how that can be rectified are writer and commentator Eliane Glazer and the anthropologist and author David Graeber and to ensure that we're all rooted in fact the Renegade Inc resident data journalist Andrew Keith Walker is here to help us see the trends. Welcome everybody. Um, Andrew let's start with you. Uh, What have you found that uh, backs up our hunch that all is not well in the brave new workplace?
2: Well, since the 1990s, uh, late 90s, Gallup, the research company, have interviewed over 25 million people uh, working in over 190 different countries, uh, 70 different languages. And they've been looking at trends in terms of attitudes to work, how happy are people at work, talking about workplace engagement. But really, do you feel like you're making a meaningful contribution? Do you, are you enthusiastic about your work? And the results are pretty grim. On a global basis, 13% of people are actually engaged, feel happy. One, three. One, three. Now, this, is, this does vary. It's a global number, so it varies. You know, you'll know, you find that in the US, it's 30% of workers say they're happy. And in the UK, it's 17%. So we're not as happy at work. As still, it's
0: a woefully low. It, you
2: think that's low. It's the high stuff that's scary. So the, the global basis is 23% of people are actively disengaged and what active disengagement means is that they they basically don't like where they work they they don't like their job they probably don't like their colleagues they're twice as likely to suffer from incidents involving stress or anger at work i think we've all basically if we were the global workforce only one of us actually wants to be here <laughs> uh, so th- that's the state. That's the state. Of the global workplace. Of the global workplace. Basically, our expectations of work are now changing. The Gallup survey showed that the most productive, most engaged, happiest workers are workers that spend between 20 and 50% of their time out of the office working from home. We know that productivity was about three times higher in the decade from uh, 1995 to 2005 than it has been in the last one studies are showing that only about 45% of your day is spent working, and the rest of it is spent in pointless meetings, conference calls, <laughs> Skype, and
0: email. You've given this a fair bit of thinking, and a fair bit of writing. Um, this era that we're in now, how would you describe it, not just politically, but economically, when it comes to the non-job or the BS job?
1: Well, I think that what we've seen is, um, is a, a rise in kind of precarious labour, um, the job for life is a thing of the past, um, that um, people move from one job to the next, um, not always voluntarily, wages are stagnating and also the outsourcing of many jobs. So whereas before we might have worked for the probation service or the national rail or the social services and take pride in this public service, now if our job is, is now for a private company that's making a profit, we may feel less pride in our, in our work and less investment in the, the job that we're doing. So I think those changes have happened. I mean, I think if we look back to the era of Mad Men, you know, that- This, this is, is the
0: advertising agency.
1: Yes, and this era of you know, genuine fun in the office, um, drinking at noon, shenanigans behind the filing cabinet and so on. And I'm not suggesting that we- You're, you're asking for a return to, this. Go back to that. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's ironic that in this era of, of kind of the deadening effects of technology, of computerization, of bureaucracy, that ironically, we're now seeing um, the introduction of um, fun in the workplace, you know, with a <laughs> Enf- capital
0: F. Enforced yeah, fun. Yeah, the
1: fun police, you know, so um, you must, um, you know, really give yourself to your work, really engage with the, with the firm's values. Um, you must have breakout time, you know, beanbags, possibly a ping pong table. Um, in mandatory, se- a football sectors, table as well, <coughs> table and table um, football. All that. Yeah, and so, and I think that that sort of mandatory fun, you know, it's meant to encourage engagement with the the company's values and so on. But I think it's also an ironic reflection of the fact that we're having less fun at work.
0: And then it's a sort of Farquhar style that shoved down people's throats, You must be here. You must live the values. Have some fun we will even put a slide in. I think there's actually a fun officer or a wow officer somewhere Some in, company, in the US. Some company, yes. But if you're an employee and you're already disenfranchised or, or, or you know, with these stats, it's clear that there are a fair few out there, and suddenly you've got a fun officer how possibly could you smash morale any more?
1: Well, exactly. Um, it kills. It kills enjoyment, ironically. But but I think it's it's strange that you know that in an era in which we we're not seeing a job for life, that we're actually supposed to live for work, that our work is supposed to be our life, in an era where our job is not guaranteed. What we're seeing is the, the sort of erosion of a clear boundary between work and play. So while we go home, we check our work emails at night. It's kind of real blurring of of these boundaries.
0: But it has an effect, does it not, domestically? because there's a pernicious effect, a creep if you like, project creep when this, whatever device it is, is bouncing away and you know that you CC'd into emails that frankly aren't anything to do with you, but politically you've got to respond to because it looks as though you've either dropped the ball or not been you know, engaged enough. It's not a, good, it's not a healthy thing, is it? Well,
1: email I think is one of the most pernicious um, developments of our time really because email is both work and play. It's both drudgery and fulfilment. You know, we look forward to that ping of a new email, but it's also a burden. So we, we're addicted because it has that dual function. We, we feel a duty to, to check our email. But we're also looking for an email because it means that actually our colleagues care about us. We're important.
0: So you're getting this sort of ersatz, emotional aspect to work. And are people finding a sense of belonging in it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I or, think... Or
0: is the sense of belonging being foisted upon them?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You know, we want fulfilling work. We want to find meaning in work. Um, so a fulfilling job is great. It's not a bullshit job. Um, but at the same time, um, if our workplace, our, our company, is demanding that level of personal and emotional investment, then we have to ask, you know, what, what's the payback for us? in an age when wages are stagnating and work is becoming more precarious. And you don't have choice, it's this myth that you have choice and control of your work. Actually, there's just a, a lack of work and a lack of good, good, well-paid work.
0: So to take it to something that you've thought a, a lot about, which is the neoliberal aspect of this, it, it, the illusion of choice is at the heart of it. It's perfect, isn't it? As a, as a, as a sort of a pretense that the neoliberal agenda wants to push, yes, you can have all the choice in the world, provided you choose this.
1: I mean, I think that this phrase hard-working people... Who it, isn't hard-working. Yes, and also it, it, it encompasses both working-class people on low wages, but also the corporate CEO. He's also hard... Usually he is also very hard-working, and that's the, the kind of, the, that's the very broad ranks of the acceptable. People who aren't acceptable are the people on benefits, who are then branded the sort of idle poor. So actually, in the, in the olden days, we used to... Um, you know, morally criticise um, the idle rich. And now that has been turned on its head. How, so, How has that happened? So, well, everyone who works, whether they're poor or very rich, is morally superior because they're generating wealth for the um, your nation's economy, you, you know, you're succeeding in the global race and so on. Um, but if you're on benefits, if you're not working, you're morally um, retrograde. And that's been a real shift um, that we've seen in the last three to four decades. That, so that if you're rich, you are morally good.
2: There's an interesting side effect as well. Gallup did a survey a few years back, 1.4 million employees, and found that in that survey, 77% of the companies that they worked for had flexible working structures that allowed you to work from home and have you know, alter your hours in some respect. Yet they found that two of the biggest complaints were 80% of people said that they went to work when they were sick and didn't take sick days because they were too busy or they were frightened of the consequences. And 90% of people said that they often cancelled social engagements and things they had planned outside of the office because they had too much work on. So there's been a lot of talk and smiles about, oh, flexible working, you can work from home, you can do this, you can do that, it's all great. But in reality, people aren't doing it because the workload's too high. Uh, or they're not doing it because they're worried about the impact it's going to
0: have on their career prospects.
1: Yeah, flexible for whom? Yeah,
0: and let's just, um, before we go to the break, uh, conclude on this, that Alan Greenspan said the uh, the, the best, I suppose, or the optimum state for the workforce is to be insecure and live paycheck to paycheck.
1: Yeah, you want your workforce to be ultimately flexible, um, available at your beck and call, the, the whole zero hours contracts model. Um, where there's yeah, flexibility for, for the employer, but not for the employee. So if you do get the call with you know, a day's notice or an hour's notice, then you have no choice but to go in and do that shift.
3: Capitalist utopia, David. Well, yeah. I mean, Alan Greenspan has the sort of charming quality of actually saying what you imagine people like that are thinking. He would actually out and <laughs> say it sometimes. He would say things like, it's good that people should be in debt because then they can't strike and that'll lower wages. You know, he would say things like that. And. Similarly, with precarious labor, I mean, people are often accused of being conspiracy theorists for imagining that Alan Greenspan thinks the things that he actually says. I mean, he he said that quite frequently, that it's good for people to be insecure because... Um, Not just for economic reasons, but for political reasons, you know, you can't organize. Uh, I don't know if he ever quite said that outright, but it was the implication that they can't be in unions and that'll lower inflation. Um, You know, people can't organize. If people are in a precarious situation, it it means they're depoliticized. They can't demand things as much. But when you say that, you're uh, branded a... Conspiracy thing. Yeah exactly. If you if you think the ruling class actually rules in any sense, you're you're crazy nowadays. But you know, if you listen to them talk to each other, they say these things all the time. I was at a meeting of some kind of banker thing. I'm not quite sure how I got invited. Um, but it was really fascinating to see what the sort of people I always write about actually say to each other when they don't think there's someone like me in the room. Tell us. And there was one guy who was talking about the economy in general and he said, well, you know, it would have been nice if we'd managed to create a better, you know, great more secure jobs or jobs that paid better. But we've got unemployment up really high and we need to think about it's an amazing accomplishment that the, you know, we've had a recession but hardly anybody's unemployed. Um, and, and essentially, if you read through the line, he's basically saying, you know, people are working much harder for much less money in an insecure environment. And this is great. We need to celebrate that. <laughs> this is wow. pretty much up front.
0: Wow. <laughs> the, em- the empathy is phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's it for this half. Join us after this short break when we'll be talking more about BS Jobs, The Brave New Workplace with Eliane Andrew and David Gray. you're enjoying this podcast, join us at renegadeinc.com. Welcome back, Renegade Inc., the show that allows us to think differently. Uh, before we talk with David Graeber about the age of BS jobs. Uh, We'll have a quick look at the Renegade Inc. index uh, tweets that we love this week. Uh, This is from Sam S. Mullins, how to become a millionaire in four easy steps, one, be born in 1949, two, show the slightest aptitude for literally anything, three, buy a house, weight. wait. uh, I quite like it. Uh, Donald Trump tweets, who'd have thought, who'd have thought? Um, And uh, he says, Russia has never tried to use leverage over me. I have nothing to do with Russia. No deals, no loans, no nothing. All that is in caps lock. Uh, nothing quite says mental. And then caps lock uh, on social media. Or in fact, in anything. He really meant it. Um, and then went on to say in more caps lock. Complete and total fabrication. Utter nonsense. And then in lowercase. Very unfair. Very <laughs> unfair. Um, the book club uh, Renegading Book Club Mahali Chicks and Mahali wrote this book Flow it's kind of appropriate if we're talking about the brave new workplace and it's the classic work on how to achieve happiness it's a brave uh, a, a brave claim but um, have a read David you, uh, about 14 months ago now, wrote phenomenal uh, bullshit jobs. And, and the, the sort of quote that, that um, strikes me that really sums up where you're coming from it is that the, the moral and spiritual damage that comes from performing tasks that one believes to be unnecessary is profound.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's the central
3: thrust, is it not? Yeah, because I figured no one was talking about that. And then someone did a survey and... They discovered that 39% of, of people here in the UK who have jobs believe their job makes no meaningful contribution to the world. In the sense that if it didn't exist, it would make no difference whatsoever. Soul crushing, though, <laughs> yeah. is yeah, it not exactly. that you turn up day in, day out? What and- must it be like? Yeah. But the crazy thing was, on the other hand, 40% of people thought their job was meaningless. But the number of people who actually found their jobs fulfilling was so high that at least 15% of people thought their job was meaningless but liked it anyway. <laughs> Which must mean they just hate their families so much. Sure.
0: It, all this is set really in a backdrop of um, the war of admin, as I, I'd call it. Just talk a little bit about this, because all these non-jobs or, or, or BS jobs, um, a lot of them are making the rest of the population, the rest of the workforce, do stuff they don't need to do in order to justify their existence.
3: Yeah, it's a vicious circle. You create meaningless bureaucratic jobs, which then in turn create meaningless jobs in the private sector, which then in turn require, and it just goes around in circles in a thousand different ways. I mean, I've actually set up a email account to gather testimonies on bullshit jobs and some of them are extraordinary. Um, There's one person who I think works as a contractor for a contractor for a contractor who works for the German military. So if if a soldier wants to move his photocopy machine down the hall, um, it apparently has to go through three different offices and eventually reach him, and then he has to drive for an hour and a half, fill out some forms, put it in a box, and then fill out another form and go back again. Um, wow. And yeah, it's it's just a layer on layer. And, and, you know, this is all due to privatization. I mean, it's due to, like, bringing in the private sector to make it seem more efficient. But in fact, it does exactly the opposite. But isn't that the ultimate irony? Well, yeah. I mean... Oh, I, in my book on bureaucracy, I actually proposed what I called the iron law of liberalism, that any project of, of reform designed to sort of unleash market forces and get rid of red tape will actually produce more regulation, more bureaucrats than existed before. And as far as I know, um, that's always the case. There's never been an exception. Because well, well,
0: well, well. Um, we, we heard in, in the first half from you about if people are seen to have fun at work, <laughs> Um, they basically are the antichrist. Uh, yeah. s- s- but the, you've got to get rid of that uh, wherever possible because this is a f- fun-free zone unless it's prescribed fun, fun from the fun enforcement officer. Right, the fun yeah. police, then it's okay because then you don't okay. really want to have fun. Wacky tie Friday, David. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> but, mm-hmm. It's a paradox again. Mm-hmm. So we're encouraged to live for work, to really invest our whole beings and body and soul in our jobs. But on the other hand, you know our jobs are getting really boring because all we're doing is filling in forms and emailing and so on.
0: There's going to be a natural antidote to this, and it's robots and automation. Well, so it, we're told. So we're told. Let's just listen to Jim Mellon, uh, investor uh, extraordinaire, uh, about his view on well, the future and the future of work. This move
2: to automation, which is accelerating very powerfully at the moment, is irreversible getting rid of people, and why wouldn't you? Because at the moment, there's a very big move to a higher minimum wage, which is going to lead to work minimization, in my view, at exactly the time when robots and automation is becoming cheaper and cheaper and much more attracted to employers. They don't go on strike, they don't need holidays, they don't answer back, and they work 24 hours a day, and all in, the cost of a robot or automation is about $5
0: an hour, which is significantly cheaper in almost every market than a human being. So we're writing about bullshit jobs, mm. but actually you don't need to worry right. because they're, they're, it's all going to be obliterated by robots and everyone can then go out, Eliane, and Bekew be incredibly
3: creative um, and we'll have renaissance. In fact, the renaissance starts here. Well, I mean, one of the funny things about it is that so far, technology has not been used for that. Um, you know, back in the 70s, when they started introducing computers, the idea was this will eliminate most of the administrative jobs so we can get to the real stuff and do the creative stuff. And instead, said it had exactly the opposite effect. You know, I work in a university. the the actual production is teaching. It's exactly the same as it was in the 1930s. Computers have not really changed it very much. But you're festooned with admins. Yeah, yeah, we, we have three times as many administrators and we ourselves have to spend more and more of our time doing administration. So what we're essentially doing is spending less and less time doing what we do and spending more and more time sort of, thinking about what we do, assessing what we do, ironically trying to think how to do what we do more efficiently. Uh, and <laughs> since we spend about 60% of our time thinking about how to do what we do more efficiently, we actually end up, you know, 60% less efficient.
1: But isn't it also about the payment of debt, such as mortgages? So There's not, mm. n- not so much toys, but it's, you know, you well, pay, yes. you're the paying off lifelong non- debt. debts. David's work, you've written about um, work as a sort of tool of social control that actually if we keep our heads down, we stay busy, um, you know, we're less likely to go and riot and so on. And so um, do we want people to keep their heads down and be sort of a docile population or do we want efficiency and productivity and automation? So I think there's a real political ambivalence there, which is very interesting.
3: So how how do you begin to change this? Well, I think the easiest way to do it would be to overcome the taboos. Well, First of all, the debt, it's easy. Debt cancellation, rich people get to do it all the time. They did it all the t- uh, for lots and lots of major corporations in 2008. You could do it for people. The major thing though, I think, is is we have to rethink how the economy basically works and how things are distributed and sort of detach money to support basic life from work. Because I think that's the problem. You know, work is self-abnegation. There, it used to be we believed that that work produces value and, you know, they've been spending the entire 20th century saying, no, um, the genius of great entrepreneurs creates value, you're just a bunch of robots. Um, and. You know, they finally sort of got that message through, but then the question is, well, why work at all? If, if, if you're just a bunch of robots, why not replace us with a bunch of robots? So the next line is, well, if you don't spend most of your time doing something you don't like, you know, you're, you're a parasite, you're a bad person, you go back to Puritanism. And that people really seem to believe that. But um, as a result, you have this idea that anything which gives work a redeeming value it's almost like a negative. You know, if you if you enjoy your work, you shouldn't get paid as much. Many many companies say that, like, you know, increasingly they seem to feel that if if there's any work anybody would do for any reason other than the money, well, then we should find someone to do it for free. But they're willing to give lots of money to people who do utterly meaningless work. So we need to break this cycle. And and I just think basic income is is a perfect way to do that. Now we can argue about the economics, um, but I've seen very convincing arguments that it would work.
0: But this inefficiency is often that we see today, uh, um, these massive bureaucracies, it, it's often linked to the sort of old days of a Soviet system, or but, it, but ultimately it's about a centrally planned economy. And capital has centralized so
3: much, you have this, I mean, is that not the case? One of the great mysteries I was trying to answer in that original Bullshit Jobs essay, is how is it that capitalism, which is supposed to be the system that would never hire anyone who does nothing because all firms are in competition with each other, actually comes up with a system that looks, you know, if anything, even more elaborately useless than the <laughs> Soviet Union. Um, and it's a great mystery. And, and so many people, it's fascinating. The only people who really object to this are bosses who get incredibly angry at me. You know, they'll say, this is completely, I would never hire anyone who didn't work. This is, you completely don't understand how capitalism works. Everybody who actually works under those people say, oh my god, that's so true. <laughs> <laughs> there's something going on. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some kind of no one. No wonder your persona
0: non grata, though, because I mean, you know,
3: I'm telling them exactly the thing they least want to hear. Final
0: thoughts, uh, Eliane, Let's come to you. How how do how do we get ourselves out of this?
1: I think people need to work fewer hours. I mean, I think the campaign for a shorter working week is really key. Um I like working, but I I like working part time so I can also see my children and do other things.
0: One um, point to that. That um, one of the most important jobs, child rearing, but never reflected in the GDP figures.
1: No, the campaign for paid housework never mm. got off the ground. Well, I mean, it. they
3: moved into the basic income area. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, that's interesting. Although, arguably, you know, some people say that everybody's working conditions and wages were just brought down to the level of women. So the precariat is a bit like the sort of. Well, most part-time of the people I know who were
3: involved in wages for housework were pointing out it was a way of pointing out the contradictions of the system. We didn't actually want wages. You know, we wanted to point out that if capitalism worked the way it was supposed to work, it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. You know, according to its own moral standards. Uh, And then they started sort of sitting around saying, well, what would we actually demand? And it's like, well, what about we decide for ourselves what the value of our work is? And they just pay everybody the same.
1: I think the campaign against bureaucracy has to be in there as well. So
0: Front and centre. Yeah, Yeah, so just to
1: have the courage of having an exciting working life, um, and be have that to, to not regard that as an immoral, suspect thing. Yeah, I mean, if you think
3: about it, like huge percentages of our population are, are now employed as bureaucrats, and most bureaucrats. Are you know either private or public bureaucrats? You know what they basically do is sit around figuring out a way to make their underlings think feel bad about themselves. <laughs> That's what they do for a living. They don't enjoy that. I mean, it's a miserable thing to have to do for a living. Um, so so you're sitting around like you know, to seeing if your underlings are working hard enough, or pretending to work hard enough, or you know, you're sitting around seeing if poor people are looking hard enough for a job, or taking care of their kids well enough, or you know, monitoring other people's work. I mean, if those people. If we just got rid of them, gave all those people an income, and then those people who used to be monitoring them, they can get an income and form bands or write poetry too. And, you know, most of them will be bad, but some of them will be good. And they'll be happier doing that. There's a, so, a bunch of so-called
0: arch-capitalists who are watching this now. I can hear the teeth gnashing. Oh, good. That's,
3: that's what I want to hear.
0: <laughs> um, lastly, the bigger the job title, the more bullshit the job.
2: Very possibly, uh, one of the, the I, I looked at the, a set of job titles for data consultants, and the most common term was vice president.
0: How, <laughs> ma- how many vice presidents do
3: you need? Oh God!
0: <laughs> it depends how often
2: the president gets shot. I guess.
3: You know, actually, I found three different web pages with random bullshit job title generators.
1: I mean, I think the another you know, irony is that you know my students who are lectured all the time about employability so employability has to be built into every undergraduate course now mm. but again the irony is whole industries are collapsing so the jobs that they want to get the interesting creative jobs that they want to get are disappearing and i and i think that is going to create a huge Collision really of and ambition versus reality,
3: and this is a, the, the the paradox and or the contradiction, the idiocy one might say of the whole idea of educational reform for for employability. Um, you know, considering the job market is going to be changing by the time these people are. Um, probably entering it, but certainly getting anywhere within it. Um, You know, what you really need to do is educate people for flexibility, which means teach them philosophy or logic or something like that. And I've always found that, that, when I was back in Chicago, uh, philosophy majors would get jobs right away because you know, most firms actually want someone of general ability to think. And it's very hard to figure out how to get a person like that. If you have someone who's trained for a job they think will exist in the future, you know, if that job no longer exists, they're useless. If you teach someone Greek drama and logic, you know, like, they'll probably be able to figure something out what to do in the computer's break. Instead of saying, what's the framework? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Thank you all very, very much. This could go on all night. I wish it could, but we have to stop. Um, Elian Glazer, thank you. Andrew Walker, David Graeber. um, It's been enlightening. That's it from Renegade HQ this week. You can drop the team an email, studio at renegading.com. And you can join us next week for more insight from those people who are thinking differently. But until then, from all of us, stay curious. for listening to the Renegade Inc. podcast. If you'd like to watch the episode or browse more of our content, you can find us at renegadeinc.com. Renegade Inc. was produced by Megan Ashcroft and Olivia Lebrun. Renegade Inc. is a Renegade Inc. production in association with Motherload.